Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. A one, two, three, four. Welcome to another episode of Insights. We had the pleasure of catching up with Glenn Phillips of Toad the Wet Sprocket about his recent solo project, There Is So Much Here. We talk at length about his family, growing up in Santa Barbara, early fame, embarking on a solo career, personal trials and divorce, and finally finding joy and balance in life. His recent album, which is his fifth solo album, finds him writing love songs again, focusing on gratitude, beauty, and staying present. He has also found creative inspiration through a collaboration with other songwriters that challenge him to write a new song each week, and he is enjoying working again with his band, Toad the Wet Sprocket. Please enjoy this conversation with Glenn Phillips. Hi, Glenn. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thank you. How are you? Good, good, good. Where are you? Uh, Santa Barbara, California. Oh, so it sucks. The weather sucks out there. Terrible place to be. I I mean, it's, uh, I I will say it's a rainy day here. So What? uh, It's raining in California? Sunny where you are. It's rainy here, but we need it badly. So uh, it's all good. Of course. Well, we're in Memphis. And uh, when we're um, during the interview, you may see a trolley or two pass by. We have some trolleys that go up and down Main Street here where we're located. But um, but thanks for thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Um, So we're going to talk about there's so much here, but your new album. But but before we get to that, we want to hear a little bit more about you and where you grew up and how you got started and all that kind of fun stuff. Um, uh, yeah. So did you grow up, up in Santa Barbara or? Yeah, I was born else? here. Born in Santa Barbara. My dad taught at the university. Mom was uh, in in like local environmental politics. And uh, yeah, so I've been here almost 52 years. A couple of, I moved to Nashville for six months. Didn't work. I moved to Olympia, Washington for six months. Didn't work. So I, I think technically, unless you've made it a year, I've never actually moved. Uh, and Well, you uh, do live in the place that a lot of people want to move to. So it would be hard to leave, I would think. 
It's hard to leave, although I, I'm not sure <laughs> uh, if you restart in the housing market here, it's very hard to stay. So uh, <clears throat> we'll see how long we can hold on. But uh, but aside from that, uh, the yeah, started the band. Uh, I was a freshman. The rest of the guys were seniors at San Marcos High. We were in the musical Oklahoma together. And uh, were, were met, you uh, when did you start playing guitar? I started playing guitar probably after seventh grade. You know, maybe sixth grade, but not not so, so not that young was, then. Really, it was later, a little bit later. I guess I, but I was I was terrible. I'm left-handed. I play right-handed, so nothing made sense. Uh, and then, uh, but I met Todd in choir and theater, and uh, he was old enough to drive and had a big enough car that I could throw my bike in the back. And he only lived two blocks away, so. Uh, I started getting rides home from him and then found out he could play like, you know, the riff from, uh, oh God, what was it? More than a feeling. Uh, and so I thought he was really cool. So started making music together. Now, were your parents musical? Did they play an instrument? Uh, my mom is singularly non-musical and uh, my father, he could play a little bit of saxophone and a little bit of guitar but he wasn't, wasn't particularly good. Both my brother and I are musicians. So my, my parents were hard science and my brother's kind of the bridge. Uh, and uh, I'm, yeah, I'm the one without any scientific prowess in the family. So. Well, did you play any sports when you were growing up? And was there any kind of competition between say sports and music or was it all about music? Never or? cared at all about sports. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, never, never at all. Uh, you know, I like, I mean, I did a little bit of BMX. I, I think I quit soccer after two games. I begged my mom to let me stop. I think I kicked, I actually like kicked the ball into our own goal. I, I'm a terrible athlete. So uh, yeah, no interest in sports whatsoever. Uh, much more of a nerd. You know, I was into sci-fi and role-playing games and uh you know just kind of uh, i was a more of a, a daydreamer so well it's funny so i'm a fiddle player myself um mm -hmm. but a um, self-proclaimed nerd i actually mm -hmm. asked my parents three summers in a row to go to math camp mm -hmm. nice <laughs> i know and my, i and my father I... would have been proud of you <laughs> <laughs> I dropped out of pre-calc. My brother was the kid who like insists we have like his old school folders, the old peaches. Mm -hmm. And he was writing think trig all over. The <laughs> like he was a math genius. Uh, I dropped out of pre-calc. Uh, and my my father was always, he was a little disappointed. He's the kind of guy he would do proofs to to chill out before bed, like literally lay in bed and just work proofs to calm his mind. And uh, I, he was really disappointed that I stopped doing math before I went through calculus, just because he he was he tried to explain it as like it's music that it's a kind of beauty that you can't perceive until you understand it, and that once you understand it, it's incredibly beautiful. But until that point, it's gobbledygook, and I never I never got over that hill. <laughs> Well, some people would say that music is mathematical 
So you can maybe connect with him on that front in terms of- I think of- it's actually math is musical. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, and this is me just taking things I don't know enough about and jumping, but I'll go between like, there's the Rumi poem that, you know, we come to the place where everything is music. But uh, did you ever read Brian Greene's Elegant Universe? No. Tell me it's about a it. Book. It's trying to be string theory for dummies, but I, I think there's no way to do string theory for dummies. <laughs> it gets into it gets pretty mathematical and pretty complex pretty quickly. And so I I can't even grok a hypercube. Uh, and he's going from, you know, four-dimensional geometry to the higher dimensions described in, in string theory. And, you know, that they're folded in these sure. crazy, I, it's impossible for me to comprehend. I mean, and my family was nerdy enough, you know, we read Flatland as kids, you know, I remember <laughs> that as being like parents reading Flatland to me. Uh, so like when my dad was was passing he died when i was 27 and the last book he mm. read was on string theory and he was so overcome with awe for the universe mm. that it hypothesized uh that he went out with this sense of like wonder and hope like for him that the awe of uh physics was uh equivalent to the the awe that many people find in a deity uh there was no difference for him uh it was a holy a holy thing and and so i i read brian green kind of trying to understand my father a little better and uh i couldn't make it through the book it was too it was just <laughs> too too dense for me but yeah even talking about you know these the, the you know it plunk length strings show up in my album there's a song called Call the Moon Dust. And, you know, the idea of, you know, super strings, right? The tiniest thing that could be dipping in and out of dimensions and resonating harmonically. And the idea that at the core of all matter is essentially harmony, is music. And that I think of music as being, and therefore mathematics being a subset of music, <laughs> damn it. So, <laughs> um, I like the way you think, actually. So, <laughs> well, which means we're just like when we sing, we're speaking back into to to the universe in its own language. I know. Do you know Abe Partridge? No, uh, the Alabama astronaut. He gets he gets angry about the idea that that uh, I love him, he, but he he gets angry uh, about the idea that you know people say music is math and it it made me think maybe it's maybe it's actually just flipped that works well for me well it's nice that your dad actually found something he was so passionate about that to the very end he was passionate about it not everybody has that you know it's it's amazing when you have anything like that in your life i think he didn't necessarily give me science but he gave me um he gave me curiosity and my dad was um, incredibly capable of curiosity and wonder and uh, just the ability to find anything interesting and to to want to go deep into it. I would give him a book that had taken me, you know, weeks to read and like, oh, you got to check this out. And he, the next morning, I think in lieu of sleeping, he would be like, it was pretty good. Um, <laughs> and he, he had a, a, a brilliant 
mind and just a, a kind of an an infinite capacity for curiosity and uh so and it's i think it's the beautiful thing about science too is that it doesn't seek to protect what it believes to be true it seeks to find truth and to consistently you know the way that you find truth is by trying to disprove your idea and I, right. I mean i think there's so much in the world that is fake it till you make it and 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 even the scientific method which tries works hard and imperfectly to work against the human tendency to want to be right right this is the reason we try to disprove instead of trying to prove it's not like apologetics in a in a, a theological context where you start with the truth and you work backwards from there apologetics is not a substitute for the scientific method uh and and that the um the the kind of wonderful thing in that is that for a physicist the most exciting thing is to have somebody come in the room and go the newtonian model is wrong try <laughs> quantum physics and then you go wait quantum it's it's super strings it's super strings it's like wait what about a cyclical universe and what like it, it's constant wonder that there's nothing um the idea that you're you know being just dead wrong in one direction is one thing it's always a bummer but just that thought that there's always more to learn um is, is such a beautiful thing i mean i think the one you know where science probably rubs the hardest against human tendencies is that it doesn't value or celebrate negative results as much i mean if you are trying to prove something and you find that this doesn't work this doesn't work these theories are all dead ground you are saving thousands and thousands of hours of wasted <laughs> effort uh for other scientists where they don't have to walk down that path uh and but we love this idea of kind of the heroic you know heterodox person who's off on the you know sidelines and goes you know we want every scientific breakthrough to be like Galileo, right? To be something where the stakes are so high and there's this big drama around it, but time proves you right. And, and especially, I'm just going off right now, which allows room for people like Brett Weinstein, Jordan Peterson. The, there's a current heterodox podcast sphere of quasi-scientists using quasi-scientific language, but acting like because they're not mainstream, they're right, as if that's proof of anything. Whereas most science, I think, is just hard, boring grind work. And the only way to get through that hard, boring grind work is to have an endless reservoir of curiosity and wonder. Because <laughs> if you don't do that, you're just going to go to sleep and do something more interesting like working at Trader Joe's, you know? Right, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> well, you have to be excited about some kind of incremental change. So yeah. a lot of science is really just a small incremental improvement on something that someone else can mm -hmm. then build on. And like you said, you know, it's all about disproving this and testing and saying, this doesn't work, this doesn't work, and hopefully writing that down. <laughs> so you save all the other people uh, the, yeah. the time and effort so they're not doing the same test over and over again. Yeah. And that's where it's interesting in modern society and why we're moving so fast uh, forward is because of the communication uh, that we now have worldwide. We're all connected. Mm -hmm. And so for and science, it has to be amazing. 
and even that is i think an amazingly difficult problem to solve you know uh you know just taxonomy my my sister-in-law was working on this international project that was just trying to figure out um common language for you know all the living things right meaning all this you know single celled life forms all the complex like post mitochondrial life forms and and you know that something people will make the same discovery but how can they find each other how do you know what's already there what's not already there what's been given a different name because there is simply so much of it right uh and it's uh it, sifting through all the all the positive and negative results is i i can't imagine it that's why i just write three minute songs about feelings <laughs> <laughs> it's so much easier <laughs> Oh, now, now that my brain is is spinning, we'll go back to some music because that's going to be a little bit easier on my brain. Um, so, when did you start writing music? Were you really young when you started writing as well, or no? I probably started right. I think my first song was like the year after seventh grade, probably. Um, so, somewhere in there. Uh, that's still I was young. Listening- it's still young. I was listening to a lot of Rush at the time. I pretend not to remember any of the song, but I remember a little bit of melody. But I wrote some like seven minute epic because I thought I'd been listening to Hemispheres <laughs> a lot. And I thought all songs had to be like multi-part right. epics. And so is this horribly disjointed piece of, you know, kind of a love song to Janet from Syracuse. I had my first kiss ever at the intermediate girls uh, camp gate at Interlochen school uh, camp for the arts in, in Michigan. So uh, I, it was like nonsensical drivel, but that's kind of where I started. <laughs> uh, well, I, want, I wonder if Janet knows you have this song about her. Where's Janet now? <laughs> <laughs> where is Janet now? Uh, who knows? We, we passed, yeah. uh, we, we've gone our separate ways, but right. uh, it's uh yeah, I I started writing, I guess, really, you know, freshman year and after freshman year of high school. Um, I would write a lot of joke songs, silly songs for projects. Uh, my brother is a great musician. He's three years older, drummer, keyboard player. He's brilliant. Um, he has a compo- composition degree, and then he's worked for Korg, the... He's a, he makes synthesizers, uh, you know, for the last 30 years or so. So um, he, he influenced me a lot just in, and yeah, I, I started writing because we had a band and it seemed like the thing to do. And we. Now was Toad the Wet Sprocket, was that the first band that you started or was that second band? It wasn't actually, you know, it was the second band, the first band. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> first band was I know I want to know the name of the first band. Eighth grade destiny. <laughs> oh, you're kidding me. No. And and it was a trio with my friend Ben Meisel and Alex. Oh god, I can't remember his name. No, not Alex. Wait, Peugeot. Jeff Peugeot? Uh I think of him as Alex because he was Alex Lifeson. I was Getty Lee. And Ben was was Neil Pert. <laughs> and we were like eighth graders doing the most hack attempt at being rush like 
I was it was so terrible. Uh, the main memory I had was that we played we played one gig ever. We played at lunch at La Colina High School, and I remember a chocolate milk carton exploding on my base, like someone just hopped it at me and it blew into pieces on my base. But uh, so that was it was inauspicious beginnings, but destiny. Yeah. But that was a real rock. You know, that was a real rock moment right there. So. You knew it you was, were destined pretty, at that point. <laughs> it was pretty good. But then, uh, yeah, Todd and I started writing songs together. He, I'd been in a much more kind of, you know, somewhere between prog rock and, and metal period of my life. And Todd was listening to Dinosaur Jr. and Husker Du, The Replacements, R.E.M., uh, Elvis Costello, U2. Like he brought me into all of that music and we just started writing songs and uh the only club we could really play in santa barbara the one that was closest to us was this place called the shack and they the owner there jerry uh didn't believe in paying royalties to ascap or bmi you know all clubs are if you play music in a club you're supposed to pay out Oh, so sure. that the songwriters Absol get absolutely paid. yeah he thought that was armed robbery so <laughs> uh the radio was never on and it was this club that had original music seven nights a week exclusively original music if you played uh like if you played happy birthday he would go like shut off the power so we had to play full sets of original music which is a problem that almost no band has uh I remember we had we got a couple of you know party gigs at the uh university in town and and we had to learn covers because we didn't know any. Uh so very early on we were really incentivized to become writers and That's we were great. incredibly lucky for that. Yeah. Thank God he So was how cheap. long after you formed as a band and you were pretty young. So uh when did you get your first when were you signed to your first label? How old? We were signed uh, when I was 18 and we had our first two records done. Uh, we did Bread and Circus. I think I was 17 when we did Bread and Circus, our first record. 18 when we did Pale. And we had both of those completed. And even recording the record was a bit accidental. Uh, Brad Knack is a great musician and artist in Santa Barbara. And for a while, he was our co-manager. Um, but he needed a backup band. He was doing a solo project and he wanted a, a backup band for a couple songs. And he said, if you record my record my songs and I'll pay for you to record two of your own. And we just did them live in the studio and we're like, that was easy. And so let's do eight more and make a record. <laughs> and so that was our first record. It cost like 600 bucks uh, recorded and mixed in less than 48 hours. Like just uh, and uh yeah, I had assumed that I was going to go to, you know, I'd applied uh, to San Francisco State. I wanted to do arts and education and social sciences. Figured I'd be a high school teacher. I liked, you know, sociology, anthropology. Uh, and I just figured that was what was going to happen. And then uh, we completely by accident got signed. Um We'd been recording the second record and uh, with this uh, Marvin Etzioni was producing it and he gave 
our first record to his manager who worked at ASCAP, who gave it to this guy, Nick Turzo, who started dubbing off cassette copies and sending them to A&R people. And so we started getting calls and we'd never sent a demo out. And the next thing we knew, you know, we flew off to New York to meet with Sony during Dead Week, signed a record deal and then went on tour. Uh, what was that experience later. like at 18? That had to be crazy. It was really weird. I think I didn't take it very seriously because I didn't think it would last. And I knew I loved art, but I didn't love hustle. Um, I've never been much of an effective capitalist. And so, and I, I kind of felt that public exposure, I'm just sensitive that probably wouldn't be good for me. And so, uh, which I was right about. So, <laughs> but um, <laughs> so it was just a whirlwind. It, it was bizarre. I mean, I didn't expect, it, it was completely contrary to any plans that I had. You know, in that year, I met the mother of my children. We'd been together for three months. Then I went on the road for three months. Um, you know, uh, so I don't know. It was, it was, it's, I don't know what to compare it to because I was 18 at the time. And so I had very little to compare it to. It just all well, felt was, a little was bit Was fame fun at the time or was it challenging? What was it? What was your ex personal experience like? I very early developed this talent for wanting to be in the place I wasn't. Meaning when I would be home, I would want to be on the road. And when I would be on the road, I would want to be home and I would write letter after letter back when we wrote letters, you know, uh, and I'd do a lot of pining, uh, and then I would get home and I'd want to go out again and make more music, you know? Um, but fame, I, there wasn't whatever holes I have in myself and I'm prone to depression and, and self doubt. I never assumed that fame was going to fill that hole. Mm -hmm. And I always had a really rich home community. I had really good grounded friends. Um, and I didn't That's surround important. myself. Yeah. I didn't surround myself with people who, um, I don't know, were, were interested in that. I've always protected myself, even post-marriage. I never dated a fan once. Uh, kissed a fan and I was like that's not a good idea uh, <laughs> and uh, so um, I've always had a lot of skepticism around it and never really believed in it it's part of why I never moved out of Santa Barbara so you know I was married at 23 had my first daughter at 25 uh, and that's young I loved, you took on a yeah. lot Oh, I know my, 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 <laughs> that, that daughter is now 27. <laughs> so, um, you're too young to have a 27 year old. Uh, she's so great. Uh, yeah, 27, uh, 27, 25, 21. And so, um, it's, I don't know. I, I, I just feel like I, yeah, I was a dad early on. I, it, 
it just anytime I would go to LA, I felt like I was walking in someone else's skin. It just felt very uh like I was it was someone else's life. And I felt like people would figure out that I wasn't actually that good or that I didn't belong there and I would get kind of ousted. But in the process of that, I also made great friends, right? Because there's there are people who are merely famous and there are people who do well because uh because they're brilliant and because they have something to say and because they're interesting, fascinating people. And so, you know, over the years, you know, and some people I see, some people I don't, but I, I got to instill, that's one of the things I love about this job is I get to meet fascinating people. Um, you know, the least interesting thing for me is is kind of talking I don't know, talking about glory days or the past mm -hmm. or, you know, what famous people did you meet? Unless said famous person is doing something amazing, right? And, uh, you know, I know people who are, you know, yeah, I, I feel really, really lucky for the life I've had. Uh, so eventually you, um, for like 10 years, you were Ted the Wet Sprocket, and then you decided to embark on a solo career. And why why was that yeah. at that point in time? And was it just the right timing for you? No, I mean, I, I did the worst switch into a solo career possible. I mean, Toad got to the point, we were trying to make another album. We should have gone into counseling together, had a mediator, like... Uh, we were we were just at an impasse. We were trying to make new music. And I think there were too many resentments built up in too many directions and we didn't really have guidance. And, uh, so we broke up and, uh, so my next thing was getting a, a record deal, but I was in a really, I'd never made demos. I was really bitter. I was, you know, uh, I think for a while blacklisted at a few labels because uh, uh, Sony was angry that we had broken up. Wow. Uh, and so I, I got really bitter. I couldn't get a record deal. I'd been in this successful band. We broke up and I was unsignable. And uh, that was the year, um, you know, my dad was dying. Uh, I had two kids. Uh, wow. And I, at 27 was, was, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't get a record deal. Uh, and I went into an incredibly long and deep depression. Uh, and so took me, took me quite a while to start getting out of it. Um, what do you attribute working through all of that? Because that's pretty heavy because most people, it's almost like being an athlete, athlete in the sense that you're you're famous and you're peaking very early, like at, at, at a very yeah, young and age. Yeah, then you blow out an ACL and it's all over. <laughs> yeah, you blow out an ACL and it's all over and you have to reinvent yourself and come mm -hmm. up with a long-term career. And music is an amazing long-term career, but a lot of the best musicians reinvent themselves over and over again in lots of different ways. And, yeah. and so you have to kind of, I don't know, think think in terms of like, what's next for me? And so how did you work through that? I terribly, I did an awful job of it. Uh, it, it was, 
um i mean just just to say like and not not you know playing victim i i did not have the tools uh mm -hmm. and i went on the road at times where i was so bitter and sort of i was trying to keep my family afloat and i was um i remember getting letters saying you know you obviously don't want to be here like just do us mm. a favor and stay home and yeah. i uh i went through uh, you know i had like kind of a my my worst breakdown right around there were about three years in there uh, where I was just gone. Um, and uh, so right around the turn of the century, I love getting to say that. Uh, I had kind of, I, I don't know why I'd, I saw this movie. I hadn't been able to like watch a movie or read a book in over a year. Um, and for some reason watched uh, Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> And that book just made me feel like something about mortality and my, the inability to protect my family and anything. I didn't sleep for an entire week. I came completely apart. And that's finally when uh, Laurel, my, my wife at the time, said, like, this is time for help. And mm -hmm. uh, I uh, got on antidepressants. The crazy thing was I hadn't read a book in a year. And I read the Dune trilogy in a week <laughs> <laughs> as soon as I, so that was that life preserver that kind of started mm -hmm. the um, process of, of healing for me and a process that led to being able to get the band back together to slowly being able to heal some of the differences or just get past them, uh, being able to do my own music. I will say that meeting Nickel Creek probably also helped save my life. Um, I was going to ask you about that. They're amazing. In fact, yeah. I saw them really early on when they were very young and had just kind of gotten started. But how did you guys meet? And and what was, what was that sort of synergy that you found with them? Yeah, I met them uh, through this guy, John Mui, uh, who's a local guitar tech in Santa Barbara. Really wonderful guy. And he... I think he had a toad stick uh, like they were playing at a folk festival and this was before their first record came out. Uh, and my friend, John had a toad sticker on one of his cases and Sean Watkins said, Oh, I love that band. I wrote a song like thinking about him singing it that I wish I could hear him sing. And my friend, John said, Oh, I know him. I'll get you in touch. And so Sean called and sent me the song uh it's uh it was on his first solo record it's uh uh why am i forgetting i can't remember the name of it in any event uh i sang on that and this was back in the days you know of adat so i remember we recorded it on an adat uh for those for for audio nerds you'll know what i'm talking about yes uh but uh he I met him, really enjoyed him. I'd been playing at uh, Cafe Largo in in Santa Barbara and Largo, not in Santa Barbara, sorry, in Los Angeles. And Largo was this place where the owner, Flanny, was really um, providing a home for a lot of musicians who were 
in a similar position to me in a certain way because it was this time when the labels were dropping all the singer songwriters and so you'd go there and it would be amy mann and grant lee phillips and these these incredible songwriters who'd all been dropped who are all wondering what their next step was who were having to kind of reinvent and start from scratch and so there's this brilliant talented community there and uh i brought I asked Nickel Creek to come like, come open for me. And they came and opened the show and they ended up sitting in on eight of my songs and I'd never seen anything like it. And they were so full of life and love of music. And they were just so, so brilliant and good and also so humble. And so we did a couple projects together. WPA was just Sean and Sarah that was without Chris. And we did a record called, um, mutual admiration society that we recorded in my garage and we got to tour a bunch together and, and touring with them, you know, from going from the band where we were all kind of in our own corner and jaded. And then I went out with these people and they were so into playing music. We would play a show and then we'd play another hour and a half in the parking lot afterwards. And uh, we would, you know, I got to be the person to like, they were, they'd also grown up in such a sheltered way. Like I introduced them to things like coffee and, <laughs> and like, it, it was so easy to corrupt them. And, you know, but would, Sean, would you, you know, say they call in the morning and be like, I found a local coffee shop. Let's go. Like <laughs> it was just, there's a museum down the road. Let's go to the museum before the show it was the best. They saved me. Would you say they brought the joy of music back into your life? Yeah. They brought the joy of music back and just a joy of life and discovery and a, a sense of innocence. Uh, and, you know, the thing about them is like they hadn't seen a lot. Um, and that difference between innocence and naivete, right? They're, they were innocent. They were brilliant. They were observant. They were so deeply engaged and they were seeing the world for the first time. And, getting to see so much through their eyes uh, gave me hope and gave me music back, just trying to keep up with them. You know, instead of playing the same songs over and over and there's that whole nineties, like resenting your hit thing. Mm -hmm. And with them just trying to not have my wrist fall off playing rhythm guitar and trying not to be the one who ruined it. Uh, it was amazing. So in addition to Nickel Creek, you've collaborated with a lot of other artists like Garrison Starr, for example, yeah. was someone you, we, she's, she's been a Diddy person. We love her. And, um, and actually I want to talk about Matt, the electrician. He was actually through mm -hmm. Diddy as well. And that's part of your, your new album. But mm -hmm. um, so let's talk about, there is so much here, which is very different album than Swallowed by the New which came out in 2016, was it, I think? I think around then. So so how would you compare the two just before we get into the the meat of the the new album, but very different albums. This album was, when I was listening to the music, there's so much joy in this new album. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think that's the big difference. <laughs> the last <laughs> album was, you know, empty nesting, divorce. It was a lot of loss. Uh, yeah. And it, it was a deep study into grief, uh, is the simplest way to say it. I uh, 
didn't want to just make a breakup record. I wanted to make a record about grief. And because uh, that's where stuff made the most sense to me. Uh, I mean, was it cathartic it... to you to talk about all this, uh, the problems you were having at the time, or was it difficult? It was both. I mean, mm -hmm. a part of the reason for waiting to put it out is I needed to be able to sing it on the road without falling apart. Uh, and mm -hmm. so, but it, I feel like it may not be my favorite album to listen to. I think it's the most important album I've ever done because, um, just because of, those are songs that get played when people are facing death mm -hmm. or uh, facing their own death, the death of a loved one that like that, that it's the, the feedback I have had on what those songs have meant to people is more important to me than anything else I've ever done. Uh, and so I think by zooming out from the experience of divorce enough to talk about grief, which you know, uh, is is kind of love plus change, right? Love plus time. You love things, you don't want them to change. And they get old, they get ill, they go away. They grow up happy and healthy and go off to college. Uh, you know, there's a landslide that takes your home away. Like, whatever it may be, uh, a flood, you know, just, just recently, like you think of Florida. It's like grief is a constant and if you're caring about things you're eventually going to to be there and we don't have we like to just be up all the time and i think there's a way of looking at grief that is as opposed to something we suffer and i uh, maybe it's because i have the tendency to wallow i i think uh, like i feel having a good relationship with grief is a matter of building capacity and being able to hold more and being able to hold you know the love that is at the root of of grief like we we don't cry for things we don't love we don't cry for things that aren't important to us um you know we don't get angry for the loss of things that don't matter and so uh you know so that record was centered on that very <laughs> different and also recording wise we wanted to make something that had some production, but I knew I would be touring solo acoustics. So it was um, a very sparse production. It was very, you know, kind of stripped down. Um, and this record, the songs were all from a songwriting game that I play uh, with Matt, the electrician and 20 other musicians. He sends so out. So what's the game? Uh, the game was invented by uh, Bob Schneider. Basically, and Matt runs his own game, but every week he sends out a prompt. So it will be like this week, the prompt, and I really need to write it today. I don't know if I'll have time. Uh, this week, the prompt was yo-yo tricks. And so there's like 25 people in the group and everybody's going to write a song that uses the phrase yo-yo tricks at some point. Those words in order. I was thinking of like somebody was telling me, don't be a yo-yo tricks will something like you can break it up even but they have to appear <laughs> in order uh so it, it i love writing these songs because they take away that i like they show me what i need to write about 
Like there's, it's like the piece of dust in a snowflake, right? That causes the snowflake to crystallize around it. Um, you don't know what the title's gonna take you to. And uh, my, so for this album, I, I got together this group of songs and, and in, in putting them together, I realized I'd turned a corner, <laughs> if that makes sense. That it's like, oh, there's no breakup songs. There's no like, deep personal loss songs on this record it's much more about wonder and much more about falling in love again and much more like oh i'm doing okay <laughs> like so and for the production i wanted to have fun i i've made so many solo records that were purposefully smaller sounding um once again, just that idea of like, I got to go out with an acoustic guitar and this, I'm like, nobody cares. I'm just going to amuse myself. So kind of went, went for it. Uh, so there was just a lot more joy top to bottom in the process. Uh, I had a really well, good and congratulations. Time. I hear you just got engaged. Yes. Yeah. So congratulations on that, Thank on that you. front reflected in the, in the new album. And um, so where did you record the new album? Uh, the new album was recorded in Vancouver, Washington, which is just across the Cumberland from uh, Portland, uh, Oregon. And uh, did it with my friend John Morgan Askew, old friend. Uh, he worked on the Secrets of the New Explorers EP with me. And we have an insanely nerdy side project called Remote Tree Children. Uh, and... Uh, so we've we've been friends i don't know god since i was 17 or something uh known him forever and uh so and he's kind of after uh, after i had to clear all the stuff out of my old studio uh i i stored a lot of my gear in his studio and so uh he kept telling me like i owe you a record you gotta come by and record <laughs> so i came by and recorded and we had a fantastic time well, it's it's the album is really melodic and it's it's great. It's a it's a really fun album. You know, I I really enjoyed listening to it. I've been listening to it for a couple of days now, and um, it, it's really some some really great tunes on the new album. Thank who who else played with you? Uh, so Jai Tanzer was on drums, and uh, Dave Depper uh, played bass guitar keyboards he played a ton of stuff uh dave uh replaced chris walla and uh death cab for cutie used to be in the fruit bats he's a, a great multi-instrumentalist and wonderful music nerd uh so we 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 nerded out like crazy we had so much fun and it was great to once again have the attitude like there's a song called the bluest eye where at the end it gets very like majestic and kind of almost queen-like. And he had this idea, like, like I have this thing, but it's like Brian May. It's like, yes, Brian May, go for <laughs> Brian May. And so it was just really fun to amp each other up and become a little ridiculous. So we recorded there. We did all the kind of tracking main overdubbing in maybe six days. They did vocals in four days. So we had 10 days there. And then I just had it on my laptop on tour uh, with Toad. So we went on tour and I'd record background vocals backstage. Uh, got uh, Natalia Zuckerman to do some 
visited her house and uh, did some background vocals with her there. Uh, had uh, Sean Watkins played guitar on one song. Uh, Dominique Asiero, his his wife, uh, sang on uh, one song. So uh, like, it was a fun process. the The longest part of it was honestly me just editing and changing and overdubbing and background vocaling and just taking months of kind of poking and prodding until it was way overbaked. Uh, and then having a, a Michael Blue really helped me kind of sort through it a little and make sense of it as a record uh, after I'd added too many things. <laughs> <laughs> and so in this post-COVID world we live in now, are you enjoying touring again and are you touring for the <clears throat> album? I am. I, I love playing music. Uh, I forgot how hard solo touring is at, at my level. Uh, <laughs> just just like wake up, drive five hours, go to the show. Like I, I, I didn't even do merch for probably a decade because it was too much work. And so now like counting in, counting, there's just a lot to do every day. Um, and so but it's been wonderful and I feel like I have an audience, um, I think in large part because of the live streams I did during lockdown, I have a, a really dedicated audience, like where I'm not, I think a lot of people are down 20% right now. And I feel like I've kind of stayed and even moved forward a little, which is really shocking. And it's nice to feel forward movement. Um, it's great to play shows. I need to work out how to balance home life and uh, and touring life and probably need to find some kind of side hustle that lets me stay at home a little more. Because I, I, I was wondering touring, about but... that because COVID, I know I've talked to a lot of musicians and they got used to staying at home more during COVID and yeah. they liked it. <laughs> so it's finding great. that balance has got to be hard. Yes, I'll just leave it there. And especially when I have, I'm a little, <laughs> I don't know if it's ADD. It's like kind of long-term. If there's a macro version of ADD on a different time schedule, because I love doing Toad, but I love doing solo stuff. And I love doing side projects with other people. I really want to work with Sean Watkins again. I, I want to do another remote tree children. There's so many things I want to do. And there's not time for it all. Um, and so, and there's a project I want to do of, I got really involved in community uh, choir singing in the last, you know, like eight years or so. And um, there's songs that kind of came out of that and out of more just spiritual work that aren't necessarily something that needs to go through the pop or folk world, but mm -hmm. is another part of me. Um I haven't wanted to do the kind of embarrassing hemp shirt record, but uh, I'm trying to figure out what a respectful and appropriate place is for that kind of music. Uh, that's also a huge part of who I am now. Uh, and so there are more projects than there are hours in the day to complete them. So, uh, which is a good problem to have, uh, you know, uh, once again, I feel lucky. I'm not like, uh, I don't know if I'll ever like get to retire or own a house, but I uh, <laughs> definitely am rich in creativity and friends and experience. And so, but the balancing of all these things is a, 
it's definitely an issue. It's definitely a question. Uh, well, I love to hear problems. that you're in such a great place, Glenn. And I really want to thank you for stopping by and talking to us about there's so much here. There is so much here. And we take the time to really enjoy the smaller things in life. Yeah. Uh, the album is is really great. And if you ever get to Memphis, come thank see you. us. And and I will say this too, just to to loop back on depression for a second, because it's you know any time I talk openly about it, somebody somewhere responds because you know the the public conversation is difficult and um, just I don't know if there is an absolute cure for depression of the kind I have. It's very cyclical, uh, and but. But I feel like over the years, what I've learned more and more are ways of kind of diminishing the frequency and the depth and the endurance of the of the spells that I have. And that, that question of how far down do I go? Do I go down for years? And then it got down to months, down to weeks, down to days. And that there's, you know, the things that we can do for ourselves if we are inclined that way, I, I mean... So much of it is presence, is mindfulness, is gratitude. If your mind is negatively oriented and, you know, it's one of those things about the neurology of the human mind is that we are negatively oriented. We remember trauma more brightly than we remember happiness, most of us. And we remember hard things and that there is an active daily practice and it can feel trite and new agey and all these other things. But Gratitude is a practice. Happiness is a practice. Um, and I realize more and more that depression is uh, something that happens when I forget to be actively grateful, when I forget to be um, actively taking care of my mental health, uh, my rest, my my diet, my you know, alcohol, all these things that can add up. Uh, and just the idea that even if it's a chronic condition, it can be an incredibly well-managed chronic condition. Uh, and that for people who do suffer from depression, that it's like, um, it's we like to tell the story that somebody had years of sadness and now they're all better and everything's good. Uh, and I think it's more that um, life gives us lots of ups and downs and we find resilience. Sometimes we find that we're completely crushed by something we didn't think we would be. Sometimes we find that something we did not expect to crush us just overwhelms us. And uh, that the more, you know, we we do practice gratitude, seeing how much is in front of us, seeing little things, being appreciative, um, it adds up to a resilience that gets us through those things better because they they will come, they do keep coming it's not just happy ending, but there's so much joy and so much happiness. Uh, anyway, <laughs> there'll be someone so. who listens to this or watches this and re it resonates with them that you've been through it and that it's a continuous process. It doesn't end. Mm -hmm. But what you're saying is, is that uh, more and more you have coping mechanisms. And like you said, instead of three months, it's three days. And, and um, you found ways to help get you through it, but also to maybe help prevent some of that. And, and just your message and talking yeah. about it is so important for other people to hear. And there's an element of depression that comes with a sensitivity, a sensitivity to the outside world of noticing things. And that, that that's not a bad thing. There's, there's a bright side to it too. 
All right, folks, we hope you enjoyed this conversation with Glenn Phillips about his new album, There Is So Much Here, The Origin of Toad the Wet Sprocket, Life Challenges, and Ultimate Triumphs. And thanks again to Glenn for joining us on Insights. We appreciate him sharing his life story with so much honesty. From all of us at Diddy TV, thanks for tuning in today, and we hope to see you again soon, right here on Insights. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.